Hello and welcome to Bob Edwards Weekend from PRI, Public Radio International. In the film Love is Strange, Alfred Molina plays half of a devoted gay couple. After 39 years together, the characters get married, which results in big unexpected changes in their lives. Molina is here to discuss the new film and his eclectic acting career. And then Kevin Bender, who produced a documentary in the late 1980s, which features interviews with baseball's most beloved announcers. Bender sat down with Ernie Harwell, Kurt Gowdy, Jack Buck, Jack Brickhouse, Mel Allen, and Red Barber before it was too late. Ball Talk is available on DVD. And then we visit Hanson Snowbliz in New Orleans to speak with third-generation owner Ashley Hanson Springgate. The news is next. Support for Bob Edwards Weekend comes from Sirius XM Radio, home of the Bob Edwards Show. Now you can find the audio of this program and past shows online. Go to facebook.com slash Show for details. This is Bob Edwards Weekend. If variety is the hallmark of a good character actor, Alfred Molina is one of the best. Molina started his film career in 1981 by double-crossing Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He played an uptight Englishman in the indie hit Enchanted April and a drug dealer in the Paul Thomas Anderson film Boogie Nights. If you're a Law & Order fan, you know Molina as Detective Ricardo Morales, but it was his role as Dr. Octopus in Spider-Man 2 that earned Molina worldwide fame. All in all, Molina has been in some 90 films for over 30 years. His latest role is a quiet one. In director Ira Sachs' new film, Love is Strange, Molina plays George, a music teacher at a Catholic school, who marries Ben, his partner of 39 years, played by John Lithgow. Their marriage results in George losing his job and the couple having to sell their New York City apartment. Here they are breaking the news to family and friends, a group that includes actors Marissa Tomei and Darren Burroughs. We need a place to stay. Wait a minute. Did I miss something here? These last weeks have been tough on us, Elliot. Losing the job, looking for health insurance. We need a breather. Yeah, believe me, moving out of here is the last thing we want to do. It's only temporary. We'll find a new place. Very soon. So what attracted you to the role of George? Well, I think the first thing that attracted me was that um, despite George's sexuality, the, the role kind of seemed very close to me in a way. I, I, I sort of related to it in a way that you don't often, you know, when you're a character actor like I am, you know, you're, you're playing sort of villains and characters a little bit more extreme. You're always moving away from yourself, if you know what I mean. Uh, whereas this was a character that's felt very, very much, uh, very much closer to me, to my own sensibilities. And, and that was um, interesting. And then also the writing. The writing was so good and the, and the script came, came so polished and complete. Ben and George have the kind of love story you don't often see on screen. This isn't young love. This couple has a long history together. Is this a relationship you understand? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, yeah, and, and, and of course, that's a very true thing that, you know, most love stories are always about the beginnings of things, you know, 
of couples finding themselves or each other or their place in the world. And uh, here you have a, um, a a couple who are really very much in the autumn of their years, you know, sort of towards, you know, they've been together decades. And, uh, you know, that they've reached that point where all the little idiosyncrasies and irritants that uh, that characterize a long-term relationship have become absorbed and embraced into uh, into the fabric of that relationship you know and so when even when that goes away you miss it you know did you talk with gay friends about their long-term relationships no I didn't really because I think you know um, a, a relationship is a relationship you know and I don't think um, I've never believed that uh, gay men and women fall in love and stay in love any different than straight men or women you know it's it's uh, it's the experience that you have of that sensation is what counts yeah that's something the film does well it shows that gay or straight functional couples who have been together a long time look the same <laughs> that's right exactly yeah they they have the same preoccupations the same all, all you know all the same problems and joys do you see this as a political film no, I don't actually. I, I I've been asked that before, and and, and although there is a, there's certainly a, a political context. I, I I think more in terms of it being a cultural film, in the sense that you know things are changing, and and there there is a shift towards the mainstream in terms of you know, the way people are thinking about same sex marriage and equal rights and so on. But I don't think the film is political in any polemic sense, or you know, it's not a. It's not a diatribe or anything like that. I think really the the essence of it is this, you know, is the effect of circumstance on this particular love story. Working with John Lithgow, what did it take to create your chemistry on screen? Well, it didn't take much because uh, John and I have been friends for quite some time, although we've never actually, we had never worked together before before this movie. Um, but we've been friends for, you know, the best part of 20 years. And, and so there was a sort of... Um, an easy rapport already there. You know, we didn't have to work hard to create it, um, and we make each other laugh. And and you know, we, we have a lot of uh, we had we had a lot of fun together. And I think it, that just meant it was so much easier. You know, when when we got to play all the the more intimate scenes, we you know we just fell into it, and and it was uh, there was no awkwardness at all. It was it was you know it was our friendship off camera was uh, was an advantage certainly. Is the actor world clubby, and what does actor shop talk sound like? <laughs> <laughs> it can be a bit clubby. It's a bit tri. I, I prefer to call it tribal. <laughs> I, th I think actor shop talks the same as uh, surgeon shop talk or accountant shop talk. You know, you you end up talking about the things that you have in common, mm -hmm. and uh, you talk about you know sort of disasters you've experienced, and you know sort of. The the, the uh, yeah actors are can be a voluble bunch you know but it's um it's usually about the work and about sort of you know all our own our own sort of insecurities you know the the best actor I mean all the best actor stories are always about the way when things go wrong <laughs> you know which may not be the case with surgeons maybe maybe I'm wrong about surgeons maybe their stories are about when things go right. <laughs> <laughs> You've played your share of bad guys, but looking over your filmography, you've also played just about everything. Are the roles more interesting when you're a character actor? 
I think, well, they're more varied, certainly. The late Bob Hoskins, a wonderful man and wonderful actor, was, you know, once famously said that the great joy about being a character actor is that you work half the amount of time of the leading man, you get treated like the crown jewels, and if the movie stinks, nobody blames you. (laughs) (laughs) So that's really kind of, uh, there are a few advantages to it. But, you know, it's, it's... I've never had any issue playing villains. You know, playing the bad guy put two kids through college. So I'm, I'm, you know, I've got no complaints. You also look just vaguely ethnic enough to have played about every ethnicity. Yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, at uh, at drama school, I was I was described by my dean as ethnically ambivalent, <laughs> um, <laughs> which at the time sounded like a bit of a a bit of a curse. But uh, now I realise it's it's been it's been something of an advantage. Do you have any idea why you make such a good bad guy? Um, it might. Well, my mother used to say it was my eyebrows because <laughs> they're rather prominent, and the fact that uh, she, my mother used to say that I was very effective in bad guy roles because I had a, I had a knack of making my eyes go dead, which I was never really aware of. But once she mentioned it, I I started staring at myself in the mirror, and of course I didn't know I didn't know what on earth she was talking about. But apparently that's what I do. I, I can make my eyes go dead. So you know, and I'm never going to contradict Mrs. Molina. <laughs> you, were, you were Doctor Octopus in Spider-Man Two. What was it about that part that made you want to do it? Well, that was just uh, that was such a different gig to anything I'd done before. You know, in terms of uh, you know working on such a huge movie, all that green screen work, all the all the sort of technology that was involved. You know, I'd never done a movie on that scale. So that was fascinating, you know, and and the money wasn't bad either. <laughs> was it harder for you to find that character among all of the special effects? Well, actually, no. This is, this is the this is the weird thing. I mean, at one point, I did think to myself, well, maybe it's going to be harder to sort of you know stamp my 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 you know my character onto the onto this map that we're making, you know. But it, but actually, if anything, it was easier because so much of the work in terms of creating an image of that villain. So much of it was being done for me, you know, in, in with 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 all the technology, that it was, uh, you know, it was a, it was actually not not nearly as difficult a job as I would thought. I mean, it was long hours, and it was kind of it, it got into it got difficult physically to kind of keep up the energy doing, you know, many many takes on very very simple little moments. But it was uh, a fascinating experience. I mean, I, I wouldn't have missed it for the world. How long did it take you to get into that costume? I mean, you had tentacles. Yeah, that, that took a while. Yeah, but the uh, it, but there was a whole army of people helping me. You know, I mean, I remember people saying, "Oh, they must have been so heavy," but in fact, they weren't. They were made of a very light, durable material, and and there was a whole army of people, you know, holding them and manipulating them and stuff. It was uh, I call I, I dubbed us all the octorage because it was like <laughs> there were like four puppeteers to each arm, you know. So there was the whole gang of us. What do you want? <laughs> I want you to find your friend, Spider-Man. Tell him to meet me at the West Side Tower at 3 o'clock. Well, I don't know where he is. Find him. Or I'll peel the flesh off her bones. If you lay one finger on her... He'll do what? Actors Alfred Molina as bad guy Dr. Octopus in the 2004 blockbuster Spider-Man 2. What does it feel like? to act do you know when you get a part right uh that's an interesting question i i do you know i don't think i know the answer to that i i 
I don't think it ever feels right. I, I, I don't think you ever... I think you have moments where you almost touch it, where you, or, you have, or you get moments in a performance where you know it's worked. But overall, I don't think... I've never come off stage or I've never come out of a movie thinking I absolutely nailed it. I, I've never felt that way. And to be honest with you, whenever I hear actors talking about, you know, oh, I totally nailed this one, I, I never believe them. I I think if that's the case, then why bother? Why carry on? You know, there's always there's always something that didn't happen, or there's always something that could be better. You've played two famous artists, Mark Rothko in the stage production Red, and Diego Rivera in the film Frida. Are there any yeah. similarities in their characters? Well, they were they were um, they were both difficult men. I think from from all the research I did, obviously I never didn't meet either of them, but from the research I did, they were both difficult men, um, demanding, highly intellectual, sort of uh, very much marching to their own drummer, if you know what I mean, which is what makes them, you know, as characters to play, makes them absolutely fascinating. I mean, probably impossible to live with, and you might not necessarily want them around your house for dinner, but uh, to play them, you know, they're endlessly uh, fascinating. You obviously understand something about tortured artists. You were nominated for a Tony for Red and for a number of awards for Freedom. Yeah, well, I, I, well, well, that's very kind of you. I, I hope I did. Um, I hope I reached some kind of uh, understanding. But I think it's, there's always, you know, the, there's always every time every time I finish a role, whether it's rapping on a movie or or the last night of a show on stage, I always think I really ought to come back soon and try and fix it. I ought to come back and try it again because there's always this terrible feeling that you've left some. You know, I think you've had a wonderful evening, then you get home and you think, oh, hang on, where's my wallet? You know, so <laughs> you've left something rather crucial behind. Your parents went to Britain as immigrants before you were born. Did you feel like an outsider growing up in England? Uh, sometimes, yeah, sometimes. I mean, you know, I I grew up born and raised, you know, born, bred, and buttered in London in the UK and, and, that's that was home for many many years um but there is something about the brits that uh you know they're very welcoming but they never let you forget that you're not a brit if you're not there's always a point where you'll be reminded just how not english you are and uh, i was very conscious of that when i was growing up maybe that helped you as an actor Maybe it did. Yeah, maybe it did. I mean, this might be uh, this might be material for the psychiatrist chair, <laughs> but uh, I, I think uh, yeah, that, that could well be the case. Because you were busy trying to be somebody else. Well, I mean, I think there's certainly a lot of truth in that. I mean, there, there is uh, there's a great deal of 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 evidence to suggest that uh, you know being an actor or wanting to be an actor isn't a case of having something extra to offer. That it might actually be some kind of genetic flaw. <laughs> that uh, you know you're looking. You've got a little gap in your DNA that you're looking to plug, you know. What got you started? Did you always want to be an actor? Well, the family in the the family legend is that I was about eight or nine years old when I first said I want to be an actor, but uh, I can't imagine that at the age of that at that age I I had any notion of you know what uh, what it entailed. I remember seeing the movie Spartacus and coming home and just knowing that's what I wanted to do, you know, not not be Kirk Douglas or being a gladiator but you know sort of be in that world in that milieu and I started acting in you know school plays and I was very lucky I had a wonderful English master at high school who took my young aspirations very seriously and helped me a great deal and uh, you know then I went to drama school and it's, it's all I ever wanted to do I was never conscious of 
wanting to do anything else. You were Satipo in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first Indiana Jones movie, and your first film. How did you get that? That's right. Well, um, that was that was in the days when shooting in England was very, very cheap, and uh, Paramount brought their whole production over to the UK. And apart from Harrison Ford and Karen Allen, uh, I think all the other car, all the other parts were cast in the UK. And uh, you know, I just went along, and they were looking for a young actor to play this uh, this you know this South American guide. And I remember walking into the building um, to meet um, Mr. Spielberg and. Uh, uh, he asked me if I could do um, if I could do a, a, a Peruvian accent, and I sort of and I said I said yes, <laughs> and uh, and then as I was leaving the room, um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the part and stuff, and we shook hands, and I thought, oh well, you know, we'll see what happens. And as I was leaving the room, as literally as I was walking out the door, he said, "Oh, Alfred." Uh, have you got a thing about spiders? <laughs> and I just remember kind of going, uh, no, no. <laughs> but I, I think I imagine he was talking about those little ones that crawl up out of the bath in the summer, you know. <laughs> I, did, I had no idea he meant great big hairy tarantulas. But uh, anyway, it was, it was, it was, I, I was, you can imagine my first movie. I knew nothing about films. I was like out of my mind with excitement. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know you were going to be in Spider Man. <laughs> No, no, he did. That's right. <laughs> that was payback. <laughs> so, what do you remember best from that experience of the first film? Well, I I remember making a lot of mistakes. I remember, you know, being so green and 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 ignorant of camera technique that you know the the, the caterers were giving me notes. I mean, it was uh, <laughs> so sort of uh, you know I, I I mean I I would see the camera assistants putting tape on the floor you know for their for their focus lengths and and not understanding that I had to stand there otherwise I was going to be out of focus you know and it took ages for me to kind of learn the 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 technique of film but as I was learning I fell in love with it I fell in love with that wonderful sort of uh, equation that you have to solve between like the emotional life of the character and the technical requirements of making the movie and it was just I loved it I just fell in love with making films do you miss anything from your days as a struggling actor? Is it more difficult to work as hard as you used to now that you know there's always another job coming? Well, I, I, I no, I don't. I don't miss the insecurity. I don't miss the uh, the uncertainty of it. I, I think it's a it's a rite of passage. I think it's something that all actors go through. Um, you know, you you have those moments when you're not working and you feel. You sort of, you know, your life gets full of self-doubt and wondering if really it's worth it and so on. You know, we, we've all gone through that. But I don't, and I certainly don't miss those feelings. You know, I think there's a certain, there's a certain nostalgia about the first time you do anything. You know, the first time you make a movie, the first time you do a TV show, the first time you play a leading role on stage, the first time you go on tour, the first time you do anything. You know, there's a, there's a wonderful sense of excitement and discovery and, and that, I miss that sometimes, but now you know there are, there are other wonderful things that have become firsts, you know. And and as I'm going through my life as an actor, I'm I'm discovering that you know there's always something new around the corner, which is uh, always worth you know worth looking forward to. At what point did you feel uh, that you had made it, or do you still feel you're getting away with something? 
<laughs> you beat me to the punch. I I haven't I do not feel for a moment that I've made it and I still feel that I I still have this thing, you know, I, I keep waiting for a tap on the shoulder and somebody coming up and saying, We're terribly sorry, we meant the other Alfred Molina. <laughs> I'm There's been a dreadful mistake. If you could just leave it if you could just leave all that there and leave the building quietly. <laughs> What's the best advice you've been given in the business? I don't mean to sound facetious, but the best advice I got given was don't give anybody any advice. That's, <laughs> that was the best bit. But uh, I remember being very young. That um, When I was a young actor, um, I was working with an older actor who just said, don't lose that spark. And what he meant was don't lose your enjoyment of it. You know, it, it, it always has to be fun, whether you're 17 or 77. It's still got to be fun. And when it stops being fun, that's when you really ought to think about, you know, hanging your boots up. John Lithgow, your co-star in Love is Strange, just finished up playing King Lear in New York City's Shakespeare yeah, in the Park. Yeah, and I, I, I was lucky I got to see it as well. It was absolutely fantastic. What great roles do you still want to play? Well, I think I'd like to have a go at Lear one day. You know, uh, it's one of those roles that, you know, you, you sort of, you, you you look at all your life as an actor and you think, oh, you know, one day, one day I might go have a go at that. And it's a great role for character actors like me who would never have been cast as Hamlet or Romeo when we were younger. It's But Lear is the sort of the big kind of, that, that's, the, that's the big prize at the end of your, at the end of your days. Well, you're clearly too young to do this now. Yeah, yeah, a little bit too young. But there again, you know, it, it, it depends on how you view it. I mean, I could, I could always slap on a grey wig, but I think I'll give it a few years yet, yeah. I'll give it a few years yet. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Alfred Molina. His film Love is Strange opens nationwide this weekend. After the break, Kevin Bender on baseball's Voices of Summer. You're listening to Bob Edwards Weekend. Welcome back to Bob Edwards Weekend. On the corner of Chapatulas and Bordeaux in New Orleans sits a small cinder block structure, very unassuming for a local landmark. Its most unusual feature on a hot summer day might be the long line of customers sneaking out the front door and onto the sidewalk. Hansen's Snowbliz sells a sweet delicacy known locally as a snowball. Other towns and regions have similar treats made from shaved ice, but simply put, they are not as good as the ones made at Hanson Snowbliss. The shop has generations of loyal fans to prove it. And recently, Hanson's was awarded the status of American Classic by the James Beard Foundation. The business was started 75 years ago by Ernest and Mary Hanson, and today the store is run by their granddaughter, Ashley Hanson Springgate. When we visited, the shop was closed for July 4th, but Ashley took us inside for a demonstration a history lesson, and for a few snowballs, of course. I think I started here probably when I was 15, washing bottles, and then I got promoted to making change for the customers, and I probably gave away more snowballs than... <laughs> and then throughout the years, as my grandparents got older, I took on more responsibility. And now you're raising a baby. Right. Fourth generation snowblizz. <laughs> One day she'll make you a snowball. My grandparents were here till Katrina, and they were 95 years old, and they had 72 years of marriage. It's a lot of snowballs, too. A lot of snowballs. <laughs> my, grand, my, grand, 
grandmother actually started the business. I'm looking for good ice. My grandmother actually started the business in um, 1934, but she would close every year to have to have a kid. So after my dad was born in 1939, um, they opened consecutively. Was a seasonal thing? Yes, it was seasonal. Um, uh, they would try to stay open as long as possible, so sometimes our season would go to Thanksgiving and begin at Easter. So all the way through the summer. So this machine here yes. is your grandfather's invention? Yes. This one right here is the uh, first one he built in 1934. It has a wooden interior. When, he, when they decided it would work, and work pretty well, he set to build the second one. This one is made all of cast aluminum and stainless steel. Now there was shaved ice before your grandfather? Yes, and they were shaving by hand. Um, but it was not a machine? No, this was, you, this was a tool you would maybe like shave the kitchen door down with, a planer. And they would come in carts around and shave ice and put a little syrup. And my grandfather thought that it, that was gross because it had people's hands in it. And, and um, he said, I can build something better. And he, um, he did. Did he have a mechanical background? Oh, he was a machinist. Ah, very good. He, um, he was uh, a machinist by trade. And he worked in the ships and the, the machine shops along the river uh, during the war, World War II. Did he quit that to go into the snowball oh, business? No, 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 no. <laughs> Um, in fact, uh, he didn't quit his, his day job. Um, uh, my grandmother, though, thought it was too good of a machine to leave at home for the family. So she started actually selling the snowballs for, for two pennies. Two pennies. And, um, two pennies for a snowball. You would get a snowball in a small cardboard dish like this, and um, it would be piled high with snow and syrup, and you wouldn't get a spoon or a straw. you just lap it up. And um, people thought she was crazy to sell her her snowballs for two pennies because the going rate was one cent. <laughs> and she said, no, my snowballs are better. And then she rented a storefront. And then when they were able to afford buying a place, they bought this place. And um, she raised her prices to five cents then. And then one day she came home with $20. And they thought they had made it. <laughs> How many of these can you get out of a block of ice that large? It depends on the size of the cup. <laughs> our, our cups range from $1.50, which is nine ounces, all the way up into the buckets. The bucket looks like a popcorn bucket. And then we go into the, the, real, <laughs> the real pails. No, you don't. Yes, we do. What's the price for that? The, the, smallest, the smallest cans we, we fill at a, at a price of $100. And the largest are 500. And people use those for crawfish boils and uh, picnics and um, graduations. And we did one last summer. We did a chocolate uh, trash can snowball for um, for a groom's cake at an outdoor wedding. That was the original way to get your picture on the wall was to get a a, a bucket full of snowballs. <laughs> what? Um, I know we have one limeade. What else would we like? Ice cream with cream for me. Ice cream cream. What's your favorite? I think my favorite is nectar cream. 
which is a traditional New Orleans flavor. It's, um, it's like a vanilla cream soda, but it's pink. And I want that. Yes, we're sliding a big block of ice into a cylinder. The machinist's granddaughter has to explain what we're looking at here. So um, it's a ice shaving machine, and it, uh, you put the block of ice in, and uh, there's a ratchet that pushes the ice through a motorized uh, spinning blades, and then there's a foot pedal that holds the ice in place so it doesn't bounce around in there. Cups are being filled with ice and now flavored. your own syrups? Yes, we do. We make our syrups fresh every day with uh, spring water and cane sugar. I've searched the earth for lime green. I don't know why no one does it anymore. All right, I'm going to put my microphone down and have my snowball. So with our snowballs, like, you don't drink them. Snowballs in New Orleans, you eat them. If you have to drink it, then there's something wrong. <laughs> the ice should capture the syrup. It's fantastic. It is just... Oh. Oh, I've lived for this moment. Mm-mm-mm. This is perfect. For July in New Orleans. It's a hot day. Mm. Temperatures reach 100. This is truly one way to cool off. Folks, we are doing this on the 4th of July, believe it or not. And it makes you proud to be an American. <laughs> Ashley Hansen Springate is the owner and operator of Hansen Snowbliss, a snowball stand that has been a New Orleans tradition at this location since 1944. Ashley still uses the same ice shaving machine invented and patented by her grandfather Ernest. And she still makes her own syrups and fills the same bottles her grandmother Mary used 75 years ago. For location, hours, and to learn more Hanson history, go to their website, snowbliz.com. The shop will be open this year through October 1st, so if you find yourself in New Orleans between now and then, stop by for a snowball and tell Ashley that Bob sent you. I highly recommend the all-natural limeade flavor. Bob Edwards Weekend is produced by Ed McNulty, Dan Bloom, Chad Campbell, Kim Dawson, Andy Cubis, Christy Miners, Bridget McCarthy, Jeffrey Reddick, and Shelley Tillman. For more information about today's guests and to hear this program again, find us on Facebook. Search Bob Edwards Show. There you can send us messages, see who's coming into our studios, and more. Thanks for listening. This program is distributed by PRI and produced by Sirius XM Radio, home of the Bob Edwards Show 
in-depth interviews on arts, culture, and politics heard every weekday. PRI, Public Radio International. Welcome back to Bob Edwards Weekend, produced by Sirius XM Radio and distributed by PRI, Public Radio International. As summer is ending, baseball's pennant races are heating up. With the multiple camera angles, super slow-mo shots, and helpful graphics, watching games on television these days is a great experience. But there's still something missing, and some fans might point to the announcers. They simply don't make them like Red Barber, Mel Allen, Jack Buck, Kurt Gowdy, Jack Brickhouse, and Ernie Harwell anymore. Those six men are all winners of the Ford C. Frick Award, the Hall of Fame's way of honoring baseball's broadcasters. And those six legends are also the subject of a documentary that's now available on DVD. Originally released on video in the late 1980s, Ball Talk, Baseball's Voices of Summer, is hosted by lifelong fan Larry King and produced by my guest, Kevin Bender. Let's start by uh, talking about how this is not just a, um, a fine piece of entertainment, but uh, now an important document of history. You got to them uh, just in time. Well, looking back, I was lucky to, to get them at that point and while they were still alive and kicking, if not working regularly. And uh, now it's almost a, a document of a group of storytellers and reporters who really made an incredible impact on radio, baseball, and entertainment. And baseball is a radio game, don't you think? I agree with you 100%. I think it's the ultimate way to experience a baseball game, besides being in person, is by the radio. And I grew up, fortunately, listening to Vin Scully here in Southern California, and the the pictures that they create and the the rhythms that one can listen to on the radio when you're just sitting back and nothing's really happening and then the the voice of the announcer and the crowd tells you something's happening where you tune in to that that's really fits baseball perfectly and they had multiple roles to play they were reporters they were play-by-play announcers and they were also entertainers yeah, exactly. And I think what I really found fascinating about them was their ability as storytellers and entertainers. And I think that was what I tried to capture in doing this documentary about them was their ability to weave amazing stories, which they do incredibly well off the air and as well as on the air. Of course, that's one of the things that we maybe miss these days with you know, on baseball on the radio and on TV is the their ability as storytellers, given the the limitations and the confines of the current commercial situations with with in business and baseball, so I know that Red loved telling stories, as you know, and uh, he told us a lot of great stories when we met with him, and we put these into the documentary. And what we also tried to do was to weave uh, all the, the as many of the announcers as possible into a story. It's, for example, say the '51 uh, playoff between the Dodgers and the Giants, where I think there were three of the announcers there doing uh, radio that day. I know Red was doing it, Ernie Harwell was doing it, of course, but nobody remembers them doing it. They all remember the famous uh, Giants win the pennant by Russ Hodge's call. And 
an event like that takes place, we would try to weave the memories and the stories by the announcers who were there into a story about that event from their points of view. A fan in Brooklyn who hated the Giants turned his tape machine on when Russ was broadcasting in the ninth inning and uh, taped Russ saying, the Giants win the pennant, the Giants win the pennant. It was sent to Russ. He gave the man $10, Chesterfield cigarette to put it out on a record. It became the most famous single sports broadcast of all time. And there was no replay on television, no filming of what I said, and only Mrs. Harwell and I know that I was on TV that day. Harwell's been telling that story since, ever since 1951. He always tells it the same way, and I love it. And only and Mrs. Harwell it. tells it. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, yeah, speaking of Ernie, he was such an incredible help. Well, you know him, and uh, he, he really got this, helped us get this project off the ground because I, it was the first thing I'd ever done uh, as a documentary producer. And I hooked up with another gentleman who was from Detroit and happened to know Ernie, and let Ernie know that we were interested in doing something and contacting these gentlemen, uh, Mel, Mel Allen, Red Barber, Jack Brickhouse, Jack Buck, Kurt Gowdy, and Ernie. And Ernie, of course, being Ernie, got a hold of them for us and somehow convinced them to participate in our wild little project, and they all agreed to do it, thanks to Ernie. You have a nice um, back and forth between uh, Red Barber and Mel Allen, who were calling the same... Uh, 1947 World Series game for opposite teams, and each of them recounts his memory of the same play, which is uh, Cookie Labajetto's double, which broke up uh, Bevin's no-hitter. And game four uh, was, I think, the most exciting single moment that I was ever around in, in a baseball ballpark. Well, I wouldn't say it was the most exciting, but it was close to it. Uh, after all, you have a no-hitter in the ninth inning and in the World Series, and then have it... Uh, taken away from me, and not only that, the hit drove in the winning runs. Uh, Bill Bevins of the Yankees had gone uh, to two men out in the last of the ninth inning and hadn't given up a hit, and no pitcher by an inning had ever gone that far in the World Series. He needed one more out to pitch the first no-hit game in the history of the World Series. And he was leading in the ball game uh, two runs to one. He was wild. He uh, walked all told ten, and he had two men on base. But in the last of this uh, ninth inning, uh, the ninth man he walked, uh, John Frito was running for him, that was Risa. Uh, John Frito stole second base, and that put the tying run at second. So, so Bucky Harris defied tradition by putting the winning run on first base. He ordered Risa to be walked. Then he sent up Cookie Lavagetto as a pinch hitter, right hand batter, and he hit the ball at the opposite field up against the right field wall above the, the head of Tommy Henry who jumped but couldn't get anywhere near it. The ball hit the concrete wall, rebounded, and the two runs came in, and the Dodgers won it 3-2. to two. The hit broke up the no-hitter and gave the Dodgers the victory. Lamagiotto breaks up the no-hitter and breaks up the ball game, and uh, John Friedel scores the tying run and makes a slide over the winning run, and the Dodgers ran out and they're beating Lavagetto to death and they set in the other. And I sort of caught my breath, and then I said, and I didn't plan it, I said, well, I'll be a suck egg mule. And when I got back to CBS that night, I had an afternoon, late afternoon show to do, Morris said to me, he said, well, 
I don't know how you could have better put it. <laughs> right. That was a that was one of the most amazing events I think in in baseball history that that they were both there doing the game together and yeah they each had a different take on it and the idea of how to report it um, it was a no hitter going on and you know the superstitions that take place and red really didn't agree with those superstitions I don't think <laughs> no and uh, but to hear those two guys talk about that who were there and just the back and forth as you said between them and their I think a little bit of their oh, their, their backgrounds and their, not their boosterism, but of course they, they felt for their teams, I think, they, the characters on the teams and the players. And this, the way it comes across, that amazing event of Cookie Lavagetto driving home uh, the two runners, the Dodgers winning the game in the ninth inning uh, in the fourth game of the World Series. Uh, it was a highlight, I think, of, of both of their careers because they really both lit up when they, talk, they talked about it. And the first two baseball announcers to go into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Right. And now uh, all of the announcers are in the Hall of Fame that we interviewed. And uh, I think we're particularly proud of that and uh, very deservedly so. Two of these guys never saw a Major League Baseball game until they were working one, Red Barber and Kurt Gowdy. That's amazing, isn't it? (laughs) The thing about uh, the hiring of me by uh, the Crosley Radio Corporation, they never asked had I broadcast in the professional baseball. And uh, you know they say, if you're gonna be a good witness, don't volunteer any information, only answer exactly what you're asked. Well, they didn't ask me my experience in broadcasting professional baseball, and I didn't volunteer it. Uh, I'd been broadcasting baseball down in uh, Florida, uh, university games, uh, semi-pro games, uh, American Asian Junior Baseball, and uh, I said to myself, to buoy my confidence, well, listen, boy, it doesn't make any difference whether it's the major leagues or not. It's still 90 feet between bases. It's still three strikes. It's still <laughs> four balls. It's still three outs for a half an inning, and they still play nine unless they go into overtime. So I knew, because I'd prepared myself, I knew I could do it. With the Yankees, well, I was scared to death. But I, I went down to spring training, and here was Joe DiMaggio, and. Tommy Henrik, Bill Dickey, all these great names I'd, I'd heard about. And uh, Mel was uh, the number one broadcaster in baseball, he and Red Barber in those days. And uh, I was rather in awe of the whole thing. And it took me about half a year to get going in New York. In fact, if I hadn't loosened up a little bit, I might have not got into my second year. I, I didn't do a very good job for a while. But I finally got going in it. and. Uh, but I was scared to death and the first time I ever walked in the Yankee Stadium. I'd never seen a big league ball game when I started broadcasting. I'd never been to one. You know, the, the, the incredible lack of experience that they had in those days and the opportunities that, that they took advantage of being interested in, in baseball and radio in those days were amazing. They would just never, the first professional or major league baseball game that they saw, they broadcast those two. You know, you can't even possibly think of something like that happening today. I'm talking with filmmaker Kevin Bender about baseball's golden age of broadcasting. His documentary about some of the sport's legendary announcers is called Ball Talk. Brickhouse and Ernie Harwell are very good on uh, uh, talking about recreations of games that are played on the road, and they're not attending. They're getting information by teletype. When we started working with the Crackers, the station, and this was true even in the major leagues then, didn't they want to spend money to send the announcers on the road. So they would recreate the games in a studio. And the situation would be something like that. If the Atlanta team was playing in Birmingham, 
We'd have a telegrapher in the press box in Birmingham. We'd have another one in the studio with me in Atlanta. The telegrapher in Birmingham would send S1C, for instance, strike one call. And the telegrapher in Atlanta would write that on his typewriter and he'd hand it to me and uh, I would recreate what was happening. I'd say, uh, Kelly's out on the mound, he winds, he throws, and strike one called, a fastball, got the outside corner on Brown, and the county strike one. Also, however, it gave you a chance to sound like a genius, too, because now, here comes that tape. Cavaretta, singles to right, scoring Jones. Now, you can say, you know, the last time Cavaretta was up, the pitcher got him out on an inside pitch, and I'll bet if he tries to do that this time, Phil will be ready for him. Don't be surprised if Phil swings and hits one into right field. Here comes the pitch. Oh, there it goes. A base hit to right field by Cavaretta. We do things like that. Yeah, it's an amazing phenomenon that they used to do is to recreate the games and in the studio from teletype. And, uh, of course, you know, sometimes the teletype would break down. They tell these great stories about that and they'd have to have the player foul off pitches. And even Ronald Reagan, of course, tells those stories about doing that. And, uh, you know, adding a little spice to this, uh, to the uh, dry teletype that comes across, just balls one, balls strike one, that uh, they really show, could pr show their personalities when they were recreating games. And I think it's a lost art. And generally, the announcer would stay about uh, half an inning behind. So if anything did happen, he could have some catch-up time. And then when you got into the ninth inning, and if you wanted to get home in a hurry, instead of letting the batter take all those pitches, which he probably did in actuality, you'd have the batter hit the first pitch. You'd, you'd get, we had some of the quickest ninth innings you ever heard of. <laughs> I love Jack Buck talking about being so determined at age 15 that he was going to be a baseball announcer. Yeah, a baseball announcer. Not a sports announcer, a baseball announcer. When I was about 15 or 16 years old, I used to listen to baseball games and go to a lot of baseball games in Old League Park in Cleveland. But when I used to listen to the broadcast of other games, I used to say, and I could do that. And I think I could do that better than what I'm hearing. And I'm talking about when I was 15 years old. I really Always enjoyed meeting Jack Buck and uh, interviewing him in San Francisco when he was out working doing a Giants-Cardinals game. And what an amazing gentleman he was and uh, character. And, uh, you know, lifelong dedication to, to baseball. And now his son is carrying on the tradition in, in a very good way, I think. Yeah, one of the best of the, uh, the contemporaries, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's some interesting announcers these days. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say that, I mean, there's such a, there's so many of them these days that uh, I think that the, the quality is a little watered down perhaps from the, the, the heyday of the, the radio announcers. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Graham McNamee speaking from Navin Field in Detroit, Michigan. We're here this afternoon to witness the opening of the great annual baseball classic, the World Series. I admired Graham McNamee uh, tremendously. Uh, we all did. Graham McNamee was the first magnetic voice on radio. This whole country admired Graham McNamee. When McNamee would come on and say, good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the radio audience, this is Graham McNamee speaking, the whole nation relaxed and smiled in the Depression because here was this great artist. He had the marvelous voice, and he was first. Red brings up uh, Graham McNamee. Um, 
the, the first great radio star of baseball. And uh, Red used to tell me that he wanted to be Graham McNamee. He imitated Graham McNamee until his station manager took him by the lapels and told him to stop that. <laughs> Yeah, I know that he really uh, appreciated one one of the World Series when Red was sitting doing the play-by-play, and McNamee was, I think, not working at that time, but sitting right across, as Red says, uh, in the stands uh, and listening to Red broadcast and in between innings leaned over to Red and said, Kid, you've got it. Well, you know, uh, that, that was the accolade. That was uh, Excalibur, you know, with Arthur touching his shoulder with it. And, of course, Red was... Um greatly influenced by Jackie Robinson uh, breaking into baseball in 1947, breaking the color line, and, and really turning Red Barber around on matters of race. Of course, it was a shock to me when Mr. Ricky told me in confidence that he was going to bring a black player. He told me this before he ever knew Robinson was coming. He told me this in March of 1945. And he didn't uh, come in touch with Robinson himself until late that year. And I had to examine myself. Of course, Mr. Ricky gave me time to either make up my mind to broadcast properly through a very stormy period or quit. And my first reaction was when I came home, told Lala that I said, I'm going to quit. I don't think I can go through with this. And she said, well, very wise woman. She said, you don't have to quit right now. Let's have a martini. The idea of coming from the southern town and uh, having, you know, grown up in a certain way, having back and forth thoughts about actually not wanting to re- to report when this happened, but Red does really go into detail about the uh, situation, and as I'm sure, again, you know of and your listeners have heard about uh, himself telling these stories. And I began to think about it as the days went by, and I had to understand that it was by chance that I was born white. I could have been born black. I could have been born uh, to any, any parents, any place, any time. Talking to Branch Rickey, Ricky consulting with his wife, and defi- finally player. deciding to go we'll back and do what he was originally told to do uh, by to Commissioner Landis was to report. And he goes back, and that's how he really got through that. Is be, of course, that objective idea of reporting the, the game and the historic event of Jackie playing the first game in 1947. That's all, the, all I did about Robinson. I merely reported him, and he did the rest. And Jackie Robinson, long a spark plug for them bums, gets them off and running to prove how rough it can be. Mr. Ricky said to Robinson, I know you're competitive, violently competitive. I know you have stood on your rights as a black man, including fighting the United States Army until they gave you an honorable discharge. But the only way that you can be the first black man to successfully integrate baseball is that you must accept the injuries, you must accept the beanballs, you must accept the profane foul curses, and that the story of Jackie Robinson is not in his base hits or his percentage or his stolen bases. To me, the story is Robinson, the spiritual man who didn't answer back for three years. And it's a real, uh, again, a real highlight, I think, of hearing him speak about that and the, act, the real conflict and, and emotions that he felt, again, are, are hard for some of us to feel. But in the context of the times and place, uh, Interesting and, uh, you know, a credit to, to Red for overcoming that. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much. 
Thank you. I appreciate your having me. Kevin Bender is the producer of Ball Talk, Baseball's Voices of Summer. It's now available on DVD and features interviews and stories from six legendary baseball broadcasters. After the break, my visit to Hanson Snowblizz for an end-of-summer treat. You're listening to Bob Edwards Weekend.